You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are once again delighted to be joined by Benjamin Stevenson, author of Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. We last had Ben on during the Crooked Hinge alongside the release of the book, but now that we've done our full interrogation on the text, we knew we just had to rip the Band-Aid off and lick this particular wound. So, Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. So, last time we had you on the show was just after the release of the book, as I mentioned. It was spoiler light, and since then you've toured the book through festivals, bookshops, peddling it backstage at comedy shows, presumably months down the line with spoilers on the table was a metafiction this absurd a good idea uh i'd have to say yes i mean i think that people <laughs> have really enjoyed it and connected with it in a way that i wasn't 100 percent confident they would but i just wanted to write something fun and unique and i think people wanted that they might not have known they wanted it before they got it but um no the response has been amazing so i'm really pleased you know, one in 50 people say, God, Ernest is annoying. And I get that. But um, yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very pleased with how it's done. So I would say, yes, it was a good idea. And the last thing before we actually get into the spoilers themselves is we touched on the rules of crime fiction alongside the release of Either Side of Midnight in August 2020. And I just wanted to set the record straight. When did Knox first cross your radar? Look, I know you got beef with me on this because I listened to parts one, two and three of this, <laughs> uh, of Death of the Reader on this book um, because you also featured the fabulous Nikki Mottram. So I was listening to her guest and I hear you were trashing me um, that <laughs> I heard it first from you. I honestly, I don't sort of, I sort of don't remember. Basically, the way that I have it is that um, I sat down to write this book and I knew I wanted to follow, have the writer be the the person who was following the, the classics that he loved. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of had that set up. And then I found the rules when I was about 10,000 words in and I was crafting or maybe even less but I was crafting sort of the narrative and I was thinking well what would this guy look up to obviously Christian Conan yeah. Doyle but but what specifically would he look up to and I just sort of stumbled across them there doing the research for this book once the idea was born but you know maybe it was sitting in the back of my brain and um <laughs> and and you lit that fire uh so you you can have that I will I will walk that into any anecdotal conversation I am I am now allowed to but for the record I really don't feel that strongly about it it was just it was just fun <laughs> to see you come around with one of my favorite things in such a good book. It was weird of your lawyers to drop by last week. That was weird, but, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Ugh, well, I guess they forgot friendly... to drop the NDA with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little friendly fight, you know, as you do professionally. Now, we, we've spoken with you before on the show, Ben, about the level of, of horrible violence in your novel, and I have to say it's generally it's pretty difficult to get a reaction out of me, but your clinical degloving of our hero Earn made me feel just a little bit sick, so... I have to ask, why the need for so much gruesome graphic violence? Well, that's really interesting because it's it, the acts themselves are quite violent, but I wouldn't call this book particularly gruesome um, in that it's it's quite quaint in the way these horrible acts are depicted. Um, but I think that, that when you're writing a novel with a certain metafictional tone or with certain comedic um, elements to it, it means that you have to treat the non-comedic elements very seriously. So the things that happen in the book have to be severe and impactful, such as degloving his hand, but also, you know, the boys in the car. That wouldn't fit necessarily in every book. It's quite dark. But 
when you're trying to balance the line of, well, yes, you've got a chatty narrator who's being comedic, but look, this can happen. This can happen to these kids. This can happen to his hand. Um, and so I guess that's why I sort of elevated it. But also it's just um, it's more fun to write and it's more fun to read, I think. You know, that, that's why <laughs> I came so up with it. Yeah, that's why the black tongue kills the way he does because it's fun, because <laughs> it's interesting, you know. So, yeah, it sort of comes down to that. I like making people shiver occasionally when they read something. I definitely noticed the uh, metaphorical and literal you know, ch- changing of the tone, even after the degloving, we literally stick a nice comfy mitt over the problem. It's it's no longer visible. <laughs> it's a, a bit of a, a comedy bit now. You know, when Gavin shows up, he says, nice glove, dude. That's one of my favorite lines in the entire novel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really love the way that you kind of balance the, you know, the, the darkness and uh, and that com- comedic tone as well. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's that's nice to hear because that's totally what I was going for with, you know, it, the, the comedy comes back in when he gets the oven mitt on and that's what you would do in that situation. Like, um, you know, they find the dead body and the first thing they do is they sit down to breakfast and and one of my favourite moments in that scene is that Catherine won't let Andy eat a croissant because he's just touched a dead body. <laughs> and he's like, but I, but I want a croissant. And she's like, no. <laughs> and, you know, that that's real. They've just touched a dead body. So, you know, it's sort of putting it back in the reality of 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 the real world because people do act like that. Yeah, I mean, mm. we're talking about the dark stuff, another layer of darkness to this book is how much sincerity you were able to pap- pack into moments like the kind of gripping description of Ern's relationship with the spaces that his father left behind. I guess, why is it so important to fill in and have those authentic kind of harrowing moments in a book that's really quite silly? Is it sort of the same relationship as you have with the violence there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, t- I'm trying to tell a really good character-driven mystery with a chatty tone. I'm not trying to do a comedy book with a couple of violent bits in it. So it's important for me that you reach the same depth of character and that you empathize and understand them and thus when they're in danger you fear for them and that's such a crucial element of dispensing crime and thriller novels just because you're writing a a lighter cozy-esque mystery doesn't mean that you can pass on that um but also you know Ern Ern has a lot of baggage to unpack and the way he relates to his family I think a lot of people can reflect in some areas outside of the murdering with the experiences he has with a couple of his family members. And so to think about that and to put it on the page, I think um, I think that's connected with a lot of people as well. So, yeah, it was really important to the book. As a, as a metafictional text, it really you really feel like Ern is trying not just to, to tell this story and make money, right? He's selling the book for $2 on Amazon or whatever. <laughs> uh, but also he's, he's trying to unpack his own... His, his own emotions, you know, he's trying to figure out how he feels about uh, the killing that he's done and, and the whole, the whole shebang. A- another interesting point about, about this authenticity that we feel was the way that you uh, count Jeremy's death. He's killed by Audrey, Andy, and Ern, according to the novel, which we thought function as a bit of a moral signifier. Those three didn't deserve the guilt of being a, a singular murderer. How have you found the response to this potential cheating of the kill count? And how do you feel about Jeremy's fate? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I think that Ernest is very deliberate 
in the things that he says and the way that he says them. And that, to me, was very important from the start because I have mixed goals of I wanted to spoil the entire book, but I still wanted to surprise. <laughs> so I need to give you what you're expecting, but also not disappoint you by giving you exactly what you're expecting. So doing it in new ways, which is reflected in a bunch of things. But in terms of Jeremy's death, Ernest and Andy, Ernest writes it like that because he does not want to admit to a murder. So it's it's not necessarily that he's shouldn't be burdened with the guilt. It's that legally, if he writes down that he puts his hands around um, Jeremy's throat, then he is, um, you know, he's killed someone legally. So he talks about his legal team and stuff. So that's sort of where it comes from, Andy. But he sort of he sort of makes the point that, well, if I did it, then it's me. And if I didn't do it, then it's Andy. So I think that that's sort of because you're reading it from his perspective. I think that that counts. <laughs> um, and I think if you read it from Andy's perspective, Andy would be like, yeah, I I did it. I did do it. I killed him. I'm the best. And I saved the day, you know, so Andy <laughs> would be okay with that as well. And then the mum, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a sort of a metaphorical death and rebirth kind of thing. I just felt it worked in the novel. No one's really mentioned it or been annoyed by it. You know, it was interesting to hear you guys talk on the previous podcast about the what you thought was going on with Jeremy. I think it was you, Ben. Oh yeah. Early on and you had you had you had lots of great theories and you got lots of it right. And yet the actual the title is Everyone in my family has killed someone and there is someone that isn't here. <laughs> like that's a spoiler on the cover. So I've basically told you who it is. And so I think that pairing that with Audrey's actions and how that sort of adds into Jeremy's finale. I'm okay yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I really love the line in the ending where it's sort of revealed that the title is almost from Jeremy's perspective, that he showed up because he thought he wasn't an outlier. And he's like, oh, well, mm. everyone in my family's killed someone, so I belong. That was like such a cool way to reverse the way that the title had been treated metafictionally the entire time along. Yeah, and then you as a reader, you know, in that scene, Andy's like, well not me <laughs> and um <laughs> you know you know it's coming it's all it so yeah i mean you've got to i hope there's enough sort of goodwill and pace and humor and enjoyment that comes from those pieces that they pay off based on the enjoyment that you get if audrey had walked out the back and shot someone some other time in her life would it have worked as well for the story even mm. though I'm doing a technicality kind of thing. Um, and I don't think the answer is yes. So that, that's why I went with it that way. Yeah. I mean, we, when we were doing the the third part of this book, we were chatting with Rod and having a, having a great time. Shout to Rod Chambers. And we talked about how you've set the novel up. Uh, you've paired the declarative title, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, with the Knox Decalogue. And you explicitly call out the structural challenges you've set yourself for the writing, you know, someone dies every chapter or every act. The the character that you name at the start of the act is the person who has killed someone in that act, that sort of thing. But towards the end of the novel, uh, we, we do feel like you, you're you using these stringent technicalities and, and kind of hand-waving the laws you laid out at the beginning. So how do you sleep at night knowing that you've committed the cardinal sin of breaking rules in a murder mystery text. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think the key element is any any good sort of 
environmental thriller, and by environmental, I don't mean like literal environment. I mean unique, structural, uh, high concept thriller. So let's take the TV show Squid Game or or, or something like that. Any anything like that lays out lays out its rules in the initial uh, in the setups. Or, or actually, a better example is any time travel movie. Right, you've got to set your rules for what you're going to do for time travel. Right. Every movie has to bring to the table what they're going to do. But a lot of the enjoyment is using those rules that you've created in this world and re-manipulating them and finding when the characters are in a bind and there is no way out because of the structures that you've put them in, how do they get out of it fairly and enjoyably and then it comes as a surprise. So I think that the... I don't think I outright broke any. I think everyone is told everything that they need to know as per the rules. But I think that using the rules in unique ways allows you to restructure your narrative and get to a next level instead of we said this, this, and this would happen, and then they happen, and then it ends, um, which sort of has a slightly unsatisfying sort of way about it. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because it reminds me a lot of the way that Michael Robotham talks about writing characters in that he'll write them into a corner that he doesn't think he can get them out of and then challenge himself to get them out of that corner in the same way that you have to set and stretch the rules as far as they will possibly go without breaking to kind of do it in this text, which is a really fun comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the point of this book is to be a modern version of the classic books and Earn sort of laments that modern fiction has sort of taken away what he likes about the golden age mysteries but the truth is that he's writing a modern fiction book so he has to do there has to be modern literature influences in there because he's writing it in 2022 so he can't just write the classic because it would be it would be dull it wouldn't hold up so he's sort of he's sort of on both sides of the camp but yeah, I, I think that's that's fantastic from from Robotham. That's that's something that um, a lot of writers do. Is is uh, you know Stephen King in the stand? Spoiler alert! But he kills half the characters in the middle of the novel because he just didn't know what to do with them. So he just blew up the house <laughs> they were in. That's pretty good. And then he just picked the ones that would survive. He's like, okay, well those. And I remember reading it, and I'm like, oh, okay, there's an explosion. Now they'll walk away, and then one person will be dead, and everyone will dust their knees. And he's like, this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person all died in the explosion. The end. Next chapter. And you're just like, what? <laughs> it's very efficient. Uh. <laughs> it's very efficient, and it's very subversive, and it surprises you. And if it surprises the writer, then it surprises the reader. So, yeah, it's a good tip. I mean, another one of the tropes that was really fun that you broke, and it kind of would be understated if Ern didn't mention it explicitly, as he is prone to do, is that they're in the kind of trapped in a storm trope, but we talk about the fact that they are just too stubborn to leave. Like, they could really go on. I guess, talk to me about including the party scene at the other ski lodge and how fun it was to both open and salt the wounds of that particular cliche. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really love that sort of that, that trapped element. And, you know, there's lots of homages to lock room mysteries in there. But, you know, Michael dies in a room, the door's unlocked. So it's like, well, it's a locked room mystery. And it's like, it's not locked. So what gives? <laughs> um, so I was definitely playing with that. But I really love the idea that there are people around, that they exist and, you know, the bus leaves and they choose to stay. And then when they go over the hill, I just wanted to sort of contrast the resort that they were at with 
you know, just that sort of university-aged ribald resort and what they would do in a snowstorm in which, you know, it's just occurred to me now that, you know, maybe there's a, a murderer picking them off, but it would be much more of the kind of um, scream, I know what you did last summer type, yeah. type killer. But, um, but that that's probably happening over the ridge at the party and everyone's partying and, and getting murdered. It's more of a slasher. Exactly. But I also wanted a different environment because I wanted the clue about the Macaulay's for them to be like, oh, yeah, they don't really fit in here. And so it had to be sort of that they were staying in this uh, hostel bunk bed uh, I really like that scene. And yeah. so then the rave sort of came out of that. I mean, it's really fun as well, the idea that we, you you know, just talking about the modern versus classic side of it and how they're staying at a much more traditional home when there's this more modern place over the hill and also the entire idea that, like, it's a long-running gag in murder mysteries that somehow the servants around the house are never up to anything worth putting on the pages, but they're still supposedly there. And I just love the thought that there are raves going on in the background of classic murder mystery fiction that we just never hear about. Yeah, what's everyone else doing? I mean, I'm just I'm I'm writing my next book now, and I'm I'm sort of got a bunch of stuff about there's more people around than just the list of suspects. And so every time Ernest talks to one of them, he says, "I'm not going to name them because." They're not part of it, and that will just distract you. And then if I give them a name, you'll think that they're part of it, and then that will make you think it's a red herring. And really, they're just there because people are around. And so, yeah, and so he sort of refuses to acknowledge the other people that are there, even though they are there. Yeah, I've been thinking about that that exact thought um, a lot this um, the last few months while writing the book. That's Before exciting. you say, when you read the next book, that – that you told me on the podcast and you send your lawyers around again. Flex, you need to put a a handle on those lawyers. Good grief. Yeah, listen. Uh, I was just the baseball bats. Just the baseball bats was was the overkill. You've got to have a bit of showmanship. You know, I figured someone who wrote a character like Ern, you'd understand that. I do, I do. I appreciate the effort. Uh, Now, obviously, um, Everyone in My Family has Killed Someone is laden in very clearly explained clues, but one curious outlier to me was Marcello's role in the story. There seems to kind of be a large gap between the first mention of his watch, the punch, and then the reveal that it was the fake. When did the watch become the resting place for the microdots, and what came first, the pigeon or the dots? Oh, good question. The watch was always in the book, and he mentions it often... Let me remember how I went through the drafting because the clue the clue was not always a set of photographs. The watch always had a microdot on it, but in the very, very early draft, the microdot was a MacGuffin. And so the joke where Ernest sort of talks about what MacGuffins are, I did that. And yeah. then the feedback from my editors was rightfully so that um, we do sort of need to know what it is and I'm like no but that's the point they're all killing over each other and you know there's nothing we don't even know what it is nothing could be anything it's the pulp fiction trick yeah exactly exactly um and so I was like all right all right yeah no that does make sense I do need to put put something in and so that's when the microdots became the photographs but otherwise the pigeon and the watch yeah they were in my original outline and and stayed the whole way to the end, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that was that was from scratch. I absolutely love the just sheer fight or flight reaction that the Chekhov's gun mentioned when we first see the pigeon gave me the first time I read the book. It was like, uh oh, here's trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I love the pigeon. I think, um, you know, I think that's one of the pleasures of mystery novels is showing someone, and this is classic, not even metafiction stuff, but but showing something, someone something that 
is a clue and they know it's a clue but its context isn't revealed or or something really really obvious so you know it might be um I'm trying to rapidly think of it, make up an example because all I can think of is stuff in actual books and I don't want to spoil their books. But you know, <laughs> you know, it, it it might be a footprint, um, but then the footprint is is oh god, this is stupid. Is two footprints or something, and they they didn't quite. They're like, why is this size fourteen man and it's two size size seven or whatever? You know, you know that that's the clue, and you know that the book is telling you that's the clue, and you know it's important. But it takes someone like Sherlock Holmes to say, well, actually, yeah, this is not what we. It is important, but it's not what we think it's saying. It this is what it's actually saying, and those are the moments that I really, really love. In crime novels. That's right. It wasn't a particularly stupid example because I can think of at least four Japanese books alone that use that exact exact setup. So it's a, it's a tried and oh, true really? one. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out really? to Snow. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, there goes that from. Well, it's not in my next book because it's not in the snow. But um, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, footprints are always a good one. Now, I I did really admire going through through this novel. How many clues are focused on senses that that aren't sight, uh, the usual iconic images of a bloody dagger and a telltale scar on the murderer's face are replaced by the sound of a leaf blower covered by a snowstorm and the utterance of the word ma disguised with an Americanism. Um, what inspired you to take a sonic approach to the laying down of clues? Oh, well, I just think that um, it's tricky. It's tricky in novels and it happens quite a lot in films that they they reveal things through certain lines of dialogue. So. And it's hard to get away with in text. Like when Lucy says to Crawford, you're the boss, and Ernest says you're the boss, but he actually, she actually says, it's your boss. You know, it's things like that. Oh, and, you know, the ending of um, Knives Out when um, when the second victim dies, you know, there's a line of dialogue there that you could not get away with in a book because it's too on the nose. But I wanted to use it because I think it's important that they're taking in everything that's around them and you know there's the there's the you sort of know a death is in the air when Ernest smells the ash and it's it's all just bringing bringing the book to life really but yeah I wanted to make sure that there were a whole bunch of different clues that come from a whole bunch of different areas not just Ernest sort of noticing everything um as he comes along I mean I think that these clues work so well because of that unreliability because we hear sounds smell smells that we don't have context for i'm kind of curious how you framed those clues how you kind of worked out you know this this kind of sounds like this and that kind of sounds like that you, you keep mentioning films as a as an inspiration f- for your work and for the way that you i guess think about media uh i'm curious if there's a particular film that you think of with these like uh, these clues that are constantly being misinterpreted until the aha moment is that sort of where that's coming from or yeah i guess um i i guess i just mentioned films there because that you can do things in dialogue that you can't in a book because you have to write it sort of fairly so yeah i guess i thought about what you know what lucy could say what crawford could say that moment where he sort of almost calls her mum that doesn't sort of give it away no, I, I can't think of anything specific. I guess across all media, it's just it's the moment when it snaps together and it and it all sort of cascades. And and you know, I'm very aware that this book has, I would say, more clues than most 
mystery novels. I think that is I, I a really very fair to statement to make, yeah. <laughs> I think I really wanted to put a clue on every page and, and every, you know, like he says in the book, every piece of punctuation. I just really wanted it to really build and build and build. And so it, then it goes, that means that, which means that and that and that and that and that. Instead of sort of having five or six main clues and then sort of knocking down the house of cards, which is an excellent um, way of doing it, but I was just really focused on doing literally everything everyone does relates to what they've done or what they will do. And I hadn't seen that before. So that was where I was coming from with those kind of, well, the, the, the audio scenarios is, well, you know, if, if, if the period on the page is a clue, if the footsteps in the snow are a clue, then what he hears when he's walking to the car should be a clue. The coffee behind the wheel on the truck should be a clue. What's in the truck should be a clue. What he hears when he's outside the truck should be a clue. So it's all, that's sort of where I was coming from was I was like, everything he sees has to add because he's not, he's not a genius. So he can't solve the crime by looking at one thing and going, well, that, that berry is from the uh, wild mountain of South America, which <laughs> blah, blah. And then, and then it all clicks from that. He can't, he's just got to look at every individual bit and go, well, all together, those hundred things make the mystery. Um, so that's yeah. sort of what I was trying to do. Well, I also really like the way that that serves kind of the the slasher-esque nature of the black tongue in that we find out so much about that method by people looking up online once they see the first kill. So then when we do get around to Michael's death, we're left with plenty of space for the emotional pain rather than having to explain how it would have been done, which was just such an efficient way to just land that blow. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that... Um you know, I, I think that that's what people would do in that situation. I also didn't want to do, this sounds dumb, coming from the person who wrote a book filled with flashbacks, but I didn't want to do a flashback on the Black Tongues killings. I, I wanted to have them sort of learn about it and be scared of it and then sort of, you know, is it a copycat? Is it the real Black Tongue? What's going on here? Can sort of feed through the way in which they would think about something that not everyone really knows about, but then you sort of, Google it, and then you go, wow, that's that's terrifying. I'm scared of that serial killer who, you know. Um, so it just sort of we, is building their knowledge the way that you'd build your knowledge naturally. Um, of course, having to remove his phone so we can't just Google who done it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that conveying things through sort of news articles and, and, and conversations with people who, oh, I saw that. I, I heard a podcast about that and this is what happened. I think he's um, a way that sort of builds the myth of the black tongue around Ernest rather than him sort of going in knowing all about it. I really enjoy the way that you use that that mythic nature of the black tongue because even though we, we have the kill described, we don't actually see it on screen, you know? Like in in horror films, you kind of have two two classes, one where you're, you physically see the killer, maybe they're wearing a mask or something so you don't know who they are, and they're going around stabbing people in the throat. It's all very horrifying, but like you see it physically happen. But then there's other more folklorish, uh, more supernatural maybe uh, stories where we hear about this horrible monster or this killer, but we don't actually see how they kill and there's sort of that that idea of what they're going to do to you. you know, like, like I can't really imagine what it would be like to to choke on ash for a period of hours how long it would take um i i guess i'd i'd like to know about uh how you decided on that 
that that kill method um, and, and how you kind of build dread through the unknown. Yeah, look, I mean, Ernest at the start, he says, look, this is no um, knife in the back in the library book. And that was very much, I was like, right, I need, uh, I need a method of murder that is curious and interesting. And, and it, it sort of came from the conundrum of having the body who looks like it's burned in a field of unmelted snow. And so then I walked backwards with, worked backwards with, well, how can I get this? And then I found this ancient Persian torch technique and I thought, well, that sounds psychopathic. I would love to put that in. And so really it just comes down to entertainment value and what what's doing the best for the book and the characters and what sort of grabs me enough as a writer that um, makes it interesting and also makes the villain, you know, someone scary that that is doing something that, you know, the characters haven't seen before, but certainly I've never read about it in fiction. Um, so, yeah, it's that kind of fear um, is instilled by how sort of over the top it is. Um, and then, of course, the over the topness sort of feeds into the, the metafictional nature of it, of course, because this is a mystery novel, so it's got to be next level um, is the way Ernest thinks about it. But in terms of building the dread, I think that, again, just going back to your sort of your sense-based comments, you know, I think there's a lot of of mileage that Ern gets from, you know, when he smells ash in the air or, or, or you know how terrifying it is to die like that as Lucy um, chooses not to. And so just making it, yeah, making it scary, making it hurt. But again, you know, not trying not, try not to be gruesome about it or anything, but just um, making sure it impacts the characters. And is memorable, is unique and memorable. I mean, I always try to put that in both the black tongue, but also, you know, when Michael is burying um, Alan in the start, you know, that the the reason that that's set in the spiderweb field is purely because uh, impact and 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 visual sort of memorability, um, yeah. as well as the fact that it ties into the the snow and and Ernest's memory and everything, but. You know, you're looking for those kind of moments as a writer. Yeah, you're looking for those moments as a writer and you see that photo on, you see it on the news and you're like, is that a snowfield or a field of spiderwebs? And then you just think that has to be in the book because it's so fantastic. Um, so a lot of it just does come down to that. I suppose yeah. the, the the sort of thing I wanted to, to wrap up on is you mentioned before uh, you're working on the next book. And uh, the word on the street and by street, I mean your publisher's website is that it's called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. Were you ever expecting yes. to follow up everyone in my family, and how has that process been going? Yeah, it, it's been it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed returning to Ernest. When I finished everyone in my family, I I had a synopsis plotted, um, but I wasn't sure whether the book would connect in the way that it has, and so I was sort of being pretty relaxed about um, where it might go and and whether it was a book that needed a sequel or not. Um, but then once people started reading it. Um, and really enjoying the characters, then I sort of took that synopsis out of the bottom drawer and thought, right, I'm going to, um, this will be my next book and I want to do it. Um, but it's been really fun. Um, it's been a challenge making it different but similar, which Ernest laments during the book because he <laughs> knows he's writing a sequel and he's like, well, sequels are always rubbish. So he knows that he's sort of got that on his shoulders. Um, and there's bits in the in the book where he's like, oh, well, that happened last time. And, the, you know, so I'm having good fun with the fact that Ernest 
knows that he's writing a sequel and several of the characters from several of the surviving characters from the first book return but otherwise it's very much he's a um it's very much in the mold of of the golden age detectives so around him are a new cast of suspects and a new murder and and the characters from his family sort of sort of pop in um and he's got a new crime to solve so i've had a lot of fun plotting out a completely um new mystery hundreds of clues pulling my hair out trying to get it all in all the work is the um, uh, is the spreadsheet yeah, so quite as immense this time around i don't have a spreadsheet actually no I, um yeah I didn't do one. I've got an. I've got a thing in the book which I won't talk about because it might not make it into the book. But I've got another thing like the page numbers, which has been very. It's been a curse that I've put on myself because I have to oh, update no. the book every every time <laughs> I change something. So, um, but yeah, it's just um, no spreadsheet. I've I've done it all by ear. But once it gets edited, I'm sure that I will run into bits where I'm like, oh, that clue doesn't make sense. That clue doesn't make <laughs> sense. But at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think it's, I think people who enjoyed this book are really going to love it. Um, so I'm excited for people to read it. I, I could only hope that uh, Andrew will make a return and we can see him <laughs> beat someone else up. Uh, Andy, Andy is uh, featured in the new book and he's got yeah. uh, several, several of my favorite scenes. He's, um, I'm itching to tell you, but I won't. Um, Look, don't tell me. I I just want to say I hope he gets drunk and starts a fight. That's all I want. All I want is for him to start a fight in the in the bar on on the train. That's all I want. Oh, you're going to be disappointed, but um, (laughs) no, don't tell me that. You'll be pleased. You'll be pleased with um, what he has to do in the next book. I'm I'm very confident. I'm very excited for that. I think I think it's it's earmarked for an October release, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I imagine you are quite under the pump, and I'm very excited to finally have that in my hands because. Mm. As I've said several times on the show, everyone in my family has killed someone. Is the most death of the reader book we've ever featured on Death of the Reader. So, like, just <laughs> an, an immense thank you and congratulations for this text. It is so mm-hmm. good to be able to get all the way into the weeds on it with you. Oh no worries, and it's a pleasure to be um, subject to your um, wide-ranging knowledge and um, you know <laughs> understanding of the genre, which I would suggest outpaces my own, but. Um, I was listening to your podcast and you're like, well, I think what he's trying to do here is, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that that was what I was trying to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's what I meant the whole time. I am that clever. <laughs> definitely not over-intellectualizing my um, just general attempts to survive writing a novel. Um, but uh, Is there a particular you example that you're thinking of there? Because like, I'm, I'm-, I'm excited. So I think one of you, I think one of you, the one that caught my, my eye, and I, I mean this as a compliment because I think it's, very clever. Like I wish that I could say that I had done it deliberately, but the one that caught my eye was when you took the pigeon as an allegory Ah. for Michael delivering the final message and dying while doing so. So that, I mean. I take full credit for that. I'll take it. I'll take it. But I didn't, I didn't consciously put it in like that, but I'm like, oh my God, it totally works. How clever. Um, so well done were. for that. There you go. Well, we can co-author that. That's one of my favorite parts of over-intellectualizing texts is that sometimes you are wrong in a way that really lends to an interpretation of the text. Like, you know, there definitely is the hoity-toity academic thing of reading way too much into it. But sometimes, like, yeah, there are those neat parallels that just do happen accidentally. And those are those are fun. Oh, and absolutely. I mean, over-intellectualizing is the wrong word because, you know, there's no 
that that's sort of impossible to do. Everybody sort of gets what they gets what they get um, from the novel themselves, you know, based on their state of mind and their, you know, what else they've read and what else they're thinking about and, and who they are. And so that's actually one of the best parts about writing is is that you get all those different bits. But yeah, you got me there. So maybe I'll um maybe you'll have to uh, email me all of my metaphors um, when the next book comes out before I go on a speaking tour. So I look really clever. I, I'd gladly do that. Actually, speaking speaking <laughs> of, I do want to know, has your brother been asked to sign your book at any point on on the, the latest set of comedy tours? So many times. You would not believe every single person. It's like, I'd, I don't want to buy your book. I want to buy his book. And then he he signs it for them and they love it. So he he does enjoy it. Although he's told me, I'm sure we've talked about this before um, with either side of midnight, but he's like, he's a bit sick of getting killed off. Um, The brother's characters don't tend to really last too long in my book. So he's convinced it means something. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we'll see if the next one, if he he survives. (laughs) Well, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute treat. and We cannot wait to have you back, presumably for everyone on this train as a suspect, but time will tell. Let's do it. Thank you to Benjamin Stevenson for joining us here on this podcast, extended discussion of the spoilers of everyone in my family has killed someone. And of course, thank you to Penguin Australia for providing copies of the book to Herds and myself. If you missed any of our discussion on everyone in my family has killed someone, that'll also be up on the podcast or the 2SER website. Thanks for subscribing here on the podcast. Catch you around.